Well, I will tell you, I've been very excited about this Sunday. Um, as, we've, as we proclaim Jesus Christ at Grace Bible Church, and as we study the New Testament, we need to remember that the scriptures that Paul refers to, that Stephen mentions when he gives his defense of the gospel, were the Old Testament. This was their scriptures. When the Bereans checked the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true, it was the Old Testament. And so today we're very privileged to hear about Jesus in the Old Testament. Bringing this to us this morning is Aaron Trank. He is the director of the San Francisco branch of Jews for Jesus, a ministry that he's been full-time at for seven years. He's a second-generation Jewish believer. He's married. He has three children. And he's made presentations all over California, Arkansas, Mississippi, Tennessee, Missouri, Louisiana, even Hawaii. In the back is a table, has some materials on there. And afterwards, he's going to be available to answer any questions that you have to talk about the ministry, um, to help you understand more. But please visit the table. There's some great resources out there. I took a look at them, and, and I'm excited to see those. Um, there's some for free, and, and I like the way he has it labeled free and not so free. Um, but they all look reasonable to me, and I think they'll all be edifying for you. Um, so please give a Grace Bible Church welcome to Aaron and give him your full attention, and let's hear about our Lord and Savior in the Old Testament. Aaron? Thank you. Uh, and if anyone's not familiar with our ministry, Jews for Jesus is not a church or denomination. We're an evangelistic missions organization dedicated to making the messiahship of Jesus an unavoidable issue to our Jewish people worldwide. It's just a fancy way of saying we do evangelism. <laughs> we share the gospel with Jewish people. Uh, as the, I, I'm very recently appointed as the director of our San Francisco branch. Before that, I was serving in our home office as the director of uh, digital, uh, digital communications. And uh, then before that, as the director of recruitment. Before that, as a field missionary, so uh, in this past year, my wife and I felt like we wanted to get back uh, to the actual ministry and, and, and move away from the administration of the, of the global ministry of Jews for Jesus, and so we connected back in, and, uh, and so I was made the, the director of the San Francisco branch. We, we, we are a staff of uh, eight people, five missionaries, and three, three uh, support staff. And, uh, and, and we really have sort of a fourfold goal. Um, the first goal is that we, we really are doing a lot of uh, public proclamation, public evangelism. This is what Jews for Jesus is known for, going out on the streets, doing street evangelism. Uh, our, our street evangelism, the goal of it, and we pass out tracts and, and we talk with people, the goal is to connect with individuals. It's not just to... Uh, it's not just to... to, to um, it's not just to get people reading our materials, but it's also to connect with those who are willing to do, uh, to actually look into the scriptures with us. And that connects with our second goal, which is to actually find Jewish people who are willing to sit down and open the scriptures and look at the messianic claims of Jesus. And our, our, our hope is that as we sit down and we open, open the Bible with people, that they, will, that they will see that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one of Israel. Uh, next, we work with local churches to try to resource them for Jewish evangelism. Uh, there's a lot more people who have relationships with 
with Jewish people through work or through you know, neighbors or friends than who we as missionaries can actually reach out to. And so we, we try to resource Christians to know how to share their faith with Jewish people. To that end, there's actually a free pamphlet in the back about uh, some pointers on Jewish evangelism. I'd, uh, I'd encourage you to pick that up, uh, as well as some of the other free materials. Uh, there's a publication that I have written for for the last couple of years called Havra, which is something that Jews for Jesus puts out. Uh, uh, and uh, so it's, it's, it's a sort of a collection of different essays on various topics. Uh, I, I think it's edifying. I wrote them to be edifying, but you know. Um, also, uh, when you came in, you probably, most of you at least, got this brochure. It's a picture of me when I had more hair than I do now. Um, actually, I didn't have that much more hair, but the person who took the picture photoshopped it to make it look like I did. <laughs> not a joke. Uh, my wife looked at the picture when these got printed and said, you're, that's not your hairline. <laughs> and I said, thanks. Uh, you're right. Uh, so, but if you fill this out, you can get the Jews for Jesus newsletter. You'll also get connected with our San Francisco work and where we'll send out updates so you can know how you can be praying for us. Also, if you fill it out, um, I'm happy to, I, I will send to anybody who puts a mailing address on there, uh, I will send a, a, a copy of a book we have called Devotions from the Field, which is, uh, it's just a devotional that we wrote to, uh, a lot of our different uh, various missionaries from various different branches around the world wrote uh, to to edify uh, those in our community who are praying for us. So if you fill that out, um, I, I will be happy to send you that devotional. But I really don't want to talk about Choose for Jesus. I want to talk about the message this morning. It's so appropriate that we began by reading from uh, Luke 24. And I actually, I want to begin, I wasn't planning on beginning there, but I want to begin there because it's so, it connects so well. Luke 24, after the resurrection, when Jesus shows himself, reveals himself to all of his disciples who have gathered together. They're gathered together and they're, they're talking about what a few of his disciples had witnessed when they were on the road to Emmaus and, and, and Jesus had walked with them and they didn't know it was Jesus and, and Jesus was teaching them all about the Messiah and what he was supposed to do and then they realized it was Jesus. They came back and they told the rest of the disciples and now they're talking about these things when Jesus shows up and says, peace to you. Now it's interesting, in verse 37, they're startled and they're frightened because they thought they thought they saw a spirit. Jesus' disciples had a hard time accepting that Jesus had been bodily raised from the dead. That gives us a, a little bit of a picture into their understanding of the Messiah and what he was supposed to do or what he wasn't expected to do. You know, in, in, in Judaism, especially in Jesus' day, there is no... There was no understanding of the Messiah that he would come and die and be raised from the dead. Now, it is in Scripture. That's why it, it, it says, down in verse 44, once they have accepted the fact that Jesus bodily is with them, he's not a specter, he's not a ghost, he eats a piece of of fish, and that somehow convinces them that he, he's actually there because a spirit can't eat. Uh, 
And Jesus says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Now, that's so interesting. They, these disciples were with Jesus for, you know, three years of his ministry, sitting under his teaching, and they still didn't understand. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, which is the Torah, the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the Psalms, which is the Ketuvim, which together Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim makes up the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, as we might call it, uh, must be fulfilled. And this the next verse, verse 45, is so key. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And it wasn't until Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, opened the minds of his disciples after the resurrection that they finally understood. They finally saw this connection of all the things that the Messiah was supposed to do. Now, it's so interesting because at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry, when Jesus first starts calling the disciples, they publicly recognize him as the Messiah. When, when uh, after John the Baptist has baptized Jesus and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, uh, this says, it says in John chapter 1, and I'm going to be going through a lot of scripture this morning, so bear with me. Um, but I'll try to give the reference each time I, I do. In John chapter 1, <clears throat> in verse 35, it says, The next day, uh, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. This is the day after Jesus, uh, John had baptized Jesus. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw that them following and said to, to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come you, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. If at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, his disciples recognized him as the Messiah, why were they so shocked and surprised by Jesus' death and his resurrection? This, again, connects with the Jewish understanding of the Messiah and what he was supposed to do. You know, uh, Christ means Mashiach. Christ is the Christos in Greek, Mashiach. In Hebrew, Mashiach translates to Messiah in English. But Mashiach is this term that designates an anointing, the anointed one. And kings in Israel were anointed, anointed literally with oil uh, to, to uh, signify that they were becoming the king, being anointed the king. Priests were anointed, and uh, in a similar sense, but not literally with, with oil, the prophets were anointed. They were anointed with God's spirit. In fact, the oil that, that would, was used for, for anointing of kings and priests was to signify the spirit of God. And so you have prophets, you have priests, you have kings who are all anointed. But what does this mean that Israel is waiting for an anointed one? Israel at this point in Jesus' time is waiting for 
an anointed leader, uh, a prophet, yes, a king, yes, but their understanding, if, I mean, even today, if you talk to Jewish people about the concept of Messiah, you'll use the same word as them, but you'll have completely different understandings of what that means. Uh, if you talk about the Messiah, as, as I often do with, with Jewish people today, you know, they'll often say, well, the Messiah is supposed to bring peace. The Messiah is supposed to uh, restore Israel. The Messiah is supposed to restore Judaism to a true worship of God. These ideas come from the Hebrew Scriptures, from the prophecy about what the Messiah, who the Messiah was and what he would come to do. And the first significant prophecy uh, about the Messiah that really shaped Jewish thinking uh, at Jesus' time, came from Deuteronomy chapter 18. In Deuteronomy 18, God makes a promise to Israel. Uh, I'm going to read in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this is Moses speaking, from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. <clears throat> the Messiah would be a prophet like Moses. Uh, the Messiah would be a leader like Moses was a leader. Um, and, and, and it's interesting, you know, in, in Jesus' day, there were a lot of different messianic hopefuls. What, what I mean is there were a lot of different people that different uh, groups in Israel thought were the Messiah. There was a lot of fervor around the Messiah and belief that the Messiah was coming right then. Now, we know if we look at the, we, we, we look at the dates in the book of Daniel that you know, there, is, there, is reason to, uh, there is reason for the Jewish people to believe that the Messiah was coming in the time that Jesus came, because uh, the, the, the dates and the numbers in the book of Daniel uh, prophesy very clearly when the Messiah would come. But there's also an, an interesting parallel. Israel spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt. And it was at, at that mark, 400 years in to slavery, 400 years into bondage in Egypt, that God raised up Moses to deliver them, to take them to Mount Sinai and make a covenant with them, and then to lead them into the promised land. Likewise, in Jesus' day, it has been 400 years since the last prophet in Israel spoke. Malachi, um, 400 years of silence 
400 years of expectation for a day when God would renew the nation and the people of Israel. In Jesus' day, Israel is a vassal state to Rome. Rome is the oppressor. It's not Egypt anymore. It's Rome. Uh, Rome is the overlord that, they, that the Jewish people wish to, to throw off. And there's this hope that Jesus as the Messiah, will be the one to do that. There's the hope that, the, that God is raising up this anointed leader who, first and foremost, will, will uh, break the bonds of, of, uh, of their oppressor, which in this case is Rome. We see this really clearly in John chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 3, read down through verse 15. Early in Jesus' ministry, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jewish people, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a little boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down about 5,000 in numbers, not counting women or children. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So all the fish, uh, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, the entire crowd, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those uh, who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that had been done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Moses had fed the children of Israel with the miraculous bread from heaven, the manna in the wilderness. And now Jesus is feeding the people with this miraculous bread from heaven as well. Moses had taught them as one who had authority, as, as one who, who received words from God and then spoke them out to the people. And the scribes, or the, the people said, Jesus doesn't teach as one of the scribes, but he teaches as one who has authority. They're connecting the works and the words of Jesus with the works and the words of Moses accurately and saying, surely this is the prophet. This is the one we're waiting for. But this is their reaction in verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, maybe we've read this passage so many times that we've missed in verse 15 that this isn't really a natural reaction. Um, what I mean is, it doesn't logically follow that if 
Jesus is the prophet like Moses, then they should therefore take him and make him their king. Moses wasn't their king. He was their leader, certainly. He was the one who, was, who, who interceded between God and, and, and the people, but he wasn't their king. Why would they try to make him king? Well, this connects with the second uh, important idea about the Messiah, about the one that God would send. God made a covenant with King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David wanted to build the 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 uh, temple to the Lord, and the Lord said that he couldn't. But, but because of David's desire to honor the Lord by building a permanent temple, God makes this covenant with him. And it says down in verse twelve and thirteen. In this midst, in the midst of this this passage, this this exchange between David and the Lord uh, through the prophet Nathan. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God made a promise to David that his descendant would Build his house, build the Lord's house, build the temple. But that more than that, that God would establish David's throne forever. The Messiah wouldn't just be a prophet like Moses, but he would also be someone who could legitimately sit on David's throne, who could sit and, and rule and be the king, God's, God's chosen king for the people. And we see that Jesus' disciples recognize this as well. Uh, In Luke chapter 19, uh, what we call the triumphal entry, when Jesus enters Jerusalem before the Passover, before he's crucified. Uh, Luke 19, I'm going to read verse 28 down through verse 39. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mountain that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever uh, sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And then when they brought it to Jesus and throwing, and they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The Messiah would be a prophet like Moses, but would also be the king that would rule on King David's throne in fulfillment of this covenant that God made with King David. And so Jesus cannot deny what his disciples are saying. He is the one the, who, who rightfully will sit on the throne of King David. As Jesus is entering Jerusalem here, I, I think that his, his disciples and this multitude of disciples, not just the 12, I believe they're expecting him to march up to the palace and announce himself to be, announce him to be king. I think they're, they're ready for this moment when, you know, they've been following Jesus, they've been listening to his teaching, they've been, they've been um, seeing the miracles and the wonders that he has done, and now they're ready for Jesus to take his rightful place as king, to drive out the Romans, to reestablish the kingdom of Israel, to reestablish the worship of God in a way that is pure. But Jesus doesn't go up to the, to the palace. Jesus goes into the temple. In verse 45, and he entered, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of, of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is unexpected. <laughs> that the Messiah, once publicly recognized, Jesus is not hiding and from, from the people who are declaring him to be king. Jesus is entering Jerusalem, where, which is the place where he would rightfully go to sit on his throne. But Jesus doesn't go to the palace. Jesus goes into the temple. Jesus doesn't declare himself to be king, but he goes and teaches the people in the temple and drives out the money changers, drives out the merchants who are, sell, who are selling there. And this enrages the priests and the scribes and the religious leaders of the people. The people are waiting for a Messiah who would drive out the Romans, a Messiah who would overthrow the oppressor. And yet Jesus seems to have a very different purpose. This purpose is, is the mystery of the Messiah and what he would do. And Jesus reveals his purpose to his disciples just a few days later when they are celebrating the Passover together. When they're eating the Passover meal, which we know is the Last Supper. In Luke chapter 22, verse 19 and 20, 
when they're eating the Passover meal. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Ah, so we can begin to understand the purpose of the Messiah. I think Jesus' disciples, though they could not accept it at the time, they couldn't believe that Jesus would actually die. They, they heard and they, they at least knew what he was talking about. It was the prophet Jeremiah who had promised that God would make a new covenant with Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through 34, when God makes this promise to Israel while they're in the midst of exile in Babylon, Israel had inherited the land, but at, at the, the end of Deuteronomy, there's a list of, of blessings and curses. Blessings when Israel is obedient and curses if Israel is disobedient. And ultimately, the, 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 the ultimate curse of disobedience, if Israel was to go after other gods, was that God would take Israel out of the land and send them into exile. And that ultimately is what happened. Israel followed after other gods, and they were taken into exile, into Babylon. And yet, in the midst of their exile, God gives Israel this amazing promise of a day that will come. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This promise is so important because it speaks so clearly to the fact that even though Israel had broken the covenant, God was not done with his chosen people. God was still faithful to them. He was still faithful to the promises he had made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He was still faithful to the promise he had made to David that a king would rule on his throne. And so, in the midst of exile... In fact, really, at, at nearly the beginning of their exile, God makes this promise that a day will come when he will make a new covenant with them. And it's a covenant that stands in contrast to the covenant at Sinai. At Sinai, the covenant was of laws written on stone. In this new covenant, it would be law written on the hearts of men. But there are some similarities to this covenant. In this covenant, God would forgive the iniquity of the people and remember their sin no more. Now, this promise of a new covenant does not explain how God will accomplish this. Because under the old covenant, 
or the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai, God forgave people's iniquity through the sacrificial system. People would bring sin offerings. Really, the priests would bring sin offerings on people's behalf. And once a year at Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice on the mercy seat, which is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies before the Lord. And the Lord would see that sacrifice and atone for the sin of the people through it. Sin has to be atoned for because as we know, and, and as Paul summarizes, the wages of sin is death. This is a concept that goes all the way back into the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, in Leviticus 17, 11, uh, which I'll turn to just for that one verse, because it's a verse worth knowing. Uh, in the midst of this prohibition, dietary prohibition against the eating of blood, it says this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. God gave the sacrificial system to Israel so they could atone for sin. And though in Jeremiah 31, God promises that he will under this new covenant, forgive the iniquity and the sin of the people, he gives no explanation for how he will fulfill that. How could the Messiah forgive sins? In order to see the full picture, we have to turn to another prophet, to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, uh, really in many ways, really the capstone prophecy about the Messiah and what he would come to do and the most contentious prophecy when it comes to Jewish evangelism. Because in Jewish interpretation, this is not about the Messiah, but it's about the nation of Israel. I'm going to read it and you can decide. Who do you think it's about? Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He has no form of a majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. 
He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. God promised a new covenant where the law would be written on our hearts. God promised a new covenant where our iniquities would be forgiven and our sins would be remembered no more. In Isaiah chapter 53, we see a picture of how God would fulfill this. Through the death of one man, a chosen vessel, a chosen sacrifice, someone who had the ability to bear the sins of the entire world. Now, could that just be a man? Every year, uh, the high priest would have to go in to the Holy of Holies and make the sacrifice for, for, uh, to cover the, the sins of the people, to atone for the sins of all the people. How is it that God could bring in this new covenant through just one sacrifice? Now we need to turn back to John to see a few things that Jesus said about himself. Just a few months before Jesus entered Jerusalem with his disciples cheering and saying, blessed is the king of Israel. Uh, Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, the, the, the Feast of uh, Sukkot, uh, when all of Israel would come and bring the first fruits offering to the Lord at the temple. And while he was there, in John chapter 7, uh, verse 37, while he was there during this feast in the temple, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The flowing water during this feast, this, the, the feast of Sukkot, in the temple, flowing water represented the spirit of the Lord that was poured out. Uh, that was um, that was poured out when the tabernacle was dedicated at the end of Exodus. When when the tabernacle was dedicated and the, the spirit of God fell on the altar, consumed the sacrifice. Um, The Feast of Booths was a time when Israel remembered that God dwelt with her uh, in the wilderness. Even for all of the years of wandering in the wilderness, God, the very presence of the Lord, was with Israel. And here Jesus is standing up and saying that he has the authority to pour the Spirit of God on anyone whom he chooses, on anyone who believes in him. 
at the same event in John chapter 8, in verse 12, Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. During this festival, the four lampstands that were in the corners of the the courtyard of the temple, which were 70 feet tall, imagine that, a 70 foot tall lamp. These lamps were lit in remembrance of the presence of God that dwelt with Israel as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day in the wilderness. And it's in this context, when these lamps are being lit in remembrance of the presence of God that dwelt with Israel in the wilderness, that Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. Jesus is claiming to be the very presence of God that dwelt with Israel in the wilderness. This leads into a contentious discussion about authority. Whose authority? uh, By whose authority can he say these things? And at the end of this argument that Jesus is having with, with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, after they've accused him of being a Samaritan, after they've accused him of being a demoniac, because how could someone, a man, claim these things? How could a man claim to be the presence of God who is with Israel in the wilderness? At the end of this contentious dialogue, Jesus says to them in verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jewish leader said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus claims the very name of God that was so sacred to the Jewish people that even today that name is never spoken. When, when in synagogues, when people say the Shema, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh, Shema, it's, they, they don't say Yahweh. I mean, we sang it this morning, but the Jewish people would never say that name because it's the personal name of God. Instead, they would say Adonai, which means Lord. It's kind of a placeholder for the name of God be out of fear of, of um, taking the Lord's name in vain. And here Jesus is claiming the very name of God that God told to to Moses when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush. When he said, when they asked who sent you, say, I am, Yahweh sent me, the God of Abraham. Jesus claims to be the God of Israel who was with them in the wilderness How could a sacrifice of of one man, how could the death of one man pay the price for and make atonement for the sins of all mankind? Well, it couldn't. But the sacrifice of God's son could. The sacrifice of a Messiah who wouldn't just be a prophet, he wouldn't just be a king, but would be God's own son who was sent to be the ultimate sacrifice to bring in, a, to usher in this new covenant that all of us could have life, that the law could be written on our hearts, which is the spirit of God who writes the law of love on our hearts. This is God's plan to save the whole world through Israel's promised Messiah. 
But Israel expected a Messiah who would bring political liberation, who would restore the temple worship to what it was. And so they missed the actual Messiah who God sent to usher in this new covenant. They didn't understand that ultimately God's plan wasn't just to restore the nation of Israel, but to bring atonement and redemption to everyone everywhere. This is what Jesus is talking about and teaching his disciples about in Acts 24. This is what he opens their eyes and minds so that they can finally see and understand the Messiah's purpose. Not just to liberate Israel, but to bring atonement and reconciliation and redemption to the entire world. How is it, when you read in Acts chapter 2, this amazing sermon that, that Peter, who tended to put his foot in his mouth over and over again, uh, out of all the disciples, that, that this amazing sermon that convicted the hearts of over 3,000 people so that over 3,000 were added to the number of believers in one day, where did those words come from? Luke 24. You wanna, you wanna, if you want a picture of what, or an understanding of what exactly did Jesus talk to his disciples about in Luke 24, look at Peter's sermon to the Jewish people at the temple in Acts chapter 2. This revelation of the Messiah and what he would do. God's plan to redeem the whole world through a Messiah promised to Israel all the way back to Abraham when God promised to Abraham that through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we benefit from that promise even today. We pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this story of your plan to redeem mankind going back to Abraham, going back even before Abraham to the fall of man. Lord, you always were setting out to save us. I thank you, Lord, that you are a God who saves and a God who redeems that you didn't leave us to our own devices, Lord, but you sent the Messiah, not just to save Israel, but to save all of us. Lord, help us to draw close to you today. And if there's anyone here who has not accepted you, please stir their hearts that they might come to a saving faith in Jesus, your son who paid the price for all of our sin. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.